Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. So as I'm recording this introduction and just about to press publish on this next episode, which I am really excited to share with you, we are about four to five weeks neck deep in COVID-19 land. So for lots of us, this has meant a huge shift in our lives, both our personal lives, our professional lives, and has impacted the ways in which we are able to interact personally and professionally and everything in between. So I just, again, wanted to let you know I'm thinking of you all. This is, um, nobody is escaping unscathed, that is for sure. And just bearing in mind that although the catch cry is, quote unquote, we're all in this together, that we are in this together in very different ways. And just emphasizing that um, people who are already experiencing marginalization and stigmatization in the world are much more significantly deeply impacted than those of us existing in the world with a lot more privilege. So I just wanted to reiterate that because um, it can feel even more difficult if we have experienced uh, stigmatization in the world and, and now, you know, this sense of, of distancing, both emotional, social, physical and everything in between can just be really uh, felt. The felt sense of it can be a lot more uh, difficult for some than others. So just wanted to pop that in there and again, let you know that I'm thinking of you all. So uh, I wanted to uh, share this wonderful episode with you with uh, my friend and our colleague, Laura Thomas, who you will know as the author of Just Eat It. Uh, Laura is also the uh, director of the London Centre for Intuitive Eating, which she established in 2017 to help support clients who have a difficult relationship with food and their body. So Laura has a passion for delivering inclusive, trauma-informed and person-centred care for all bodies. She draws upon different therapeutic and counselling skills to support her clients in their recovery from disordered eating, chronic dieting and body dissatisfaction. She also incorporates different healthcare frameworks into her work, such as health at every size, intuitive eating and body image healing. Much of Laura's work focuses on advocacy and reducing weight-based discrimination within the nutrition profession and also healthcare settings. Laura takes a collaborative approach to working with clients, recognising that they are the experts of their own bodies and experiences. Her advice and recommendations are not didactic, but rather she helps guide and support clients to reconnect with their body. And again, just a reminder that, um, well, a little over a year ago now, Laura published her first book called Just Eat It, How Intuitive Eating Can Help You Get Your Shit Together Around Food. Um, 
Laura and I had a had a really excellent conversation on her podcast, which is called Don't Salt My Game. A lot of you will be really familiar with this. And we talked about, you know, um, that a lot of people are so over-concerned about not losing their shit around food and how we can just loosen the grip on what that even means and how that shows up for us and how losing our shit around food is just so human. So if you're interested in that, then head over to Don't Salt My Game, um, which is Laura's podcast. I've got no idea which episode it is, but I'm sure you you can find it. So one of the things about Laura's podcast is that she opens it up with what she calls quick fire action. So in this episode with Laura, I turned the tables on her for a round of quick fire action. As you'll see, it's just a bit of silly fun really more than anything else. So um, in this app, what I want to, uh, what Laura and I speak about is, um, you know, how she, how she kind of came to, you know, end up publishing a book. So we talk about the publishing processes and what's evolved since publication in terms of Laura's thoughts and um, the evolution of, of how she's um, how she's thinking about, you know, the constructs in which she, um, she wrote about in the book. Uh, we also talked about the frameworks and principles that dietitian and nutritionists find most difficult when first moving towards non-diet um, and intuitive eating paradigms, which sit underneath health at every size, uh, from the traditional weight-centric models. Um, we also talked about how we can overcome these dilemmas and complexities and how we can um, move into developing and um, working with weight-inclusive uh, guides, particularly for MNT. Speaking of, if you haven't got your hot little hands on the London Centre for Intuitive Eating's Weight Inclusive Guides for Health Professionals and Clients, which talks about medical nutrition therapy, steps you through all the research and then um, offers a very comprehensive set of uh, weight inclusive nutrition based guidelines. I was very lucky to receive a set in the mail recently, snail mail, as, as luck would have it. I love snail mail so much, especially now, goodness, where I'm in front of the screen more than ever. Um, I would really, really highly recommend them. It is very obvious that there has been a ton of work poured into them, and I can't recommend them highly enough. So you can find them on the website of the London Centre for Intuitive Eating, and um, you'll be able to find Laura and her team. Uh, the great thing is that Laura ha is a big fan of Australians, and for the last couple of years, she's had at least one Australian on her her Centre for Intuitive Eating team, which makes me quietly very proud. So let's move into my conversation with Laura Thomas. Well, hello, Laura, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Hi, Fee. Thank you so much for having me. And sorry it's taken me so long to accept your invitation. Well, um, you've been doing a few little things like running intuitive eating London and growing a human and um, you know finishing off your masters and writing a book and 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 so you know <laughs> yeah when you put it like that it hasn't exactly been a quiet year but anyway here we are and I'm very excited so thank you again for having me <laughs> you're so welcome I'm super looking forward to having a chat with you so um, I'm going to uh, switch things around a little bit because I know how much you love quickfire action on <laughs> your podcast, Don't Salt My Game. And if anybody has not tuned in to Laura's podcast, Don't Salt My Game, you absolutely have to. This is a podcast where Laura's um, 
amazing, vibrant personality just really shines through. She's had the most incredible guests on. And, um, and if you're not aware, Laura starts every podcast with what she calls quick. Is it called the quick fire round? Is that what you call it? You know what? I was sitting here like getting a little sad because the podcast is on, on a bit of a hiatus at the moment and you're making me really miss it. <laughs> so I don't even know what we call it because it's been a while since we recorded an episode. But um, yeah, like the quick fire round usually. All right. So here we go. Here's a quick fire round for you, Laura Thomas. Can we just for context talk about the fact that it's eight o'clock on a Monday morning? Oh, come on. Okay, go. Hit me. Hit me. <laughs> <No> <laughs> I'm ready. Come on. Let's go. All right. Driver or passenger? Oh, I'm going to say driver because I don't get to drive in London and I really miss driving. Oh, yeah. It, the traffic is particularly the bad, isn't it? Oh my God. Yeah. There, there's just no point. Um, I'll <laughs> take public transport. I will walk. I will ride my bike. But yeah, there's no way I'm driving in London. But I used to drive loads when I lived in the States, at, like as part of my job. And I, there's nothing better than having like a long, straight, open Texas road with like your music pumping and just, yeah, getting really into the zone. So, um, yeah. yes, I miss driving. So it would be driving. Okay, cool. Sweet or savory after dinner? Oh, sweet. Yeah. And your fave? Uh, I was sweet and savory. Mm, I like I like sweet and savory. <laughs> Just to be awkward, I like. Um, I'm trying to think of of something that would have both. Oh, both. I don't like to choose. Yeah, like why mm. I'm drawing. I'm totally drawing a blank. But like, okay, so the obvious example would be like a salted caramel. Ah, uh, yes. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. So, are we talking kind of mixed platter here, or are we talking but, one food okay. mixed? Flavors. So if I go if I go to the cinema, I cannot choose between the sweet and the salty popcorn. I have to have both mixed together. Ah, got it. Yep. If we're talking cinema snacks, I will bring like some chocolate plus some I don't know pretzels or something like that. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> like got I it. Have to choose. Right. And are we going kind of too deep, too quick to ask you like what's the method in that? Is it like sweet, salty, sweet? Mm salty or is it or is it all like salty 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 sweet 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 like oh, is there no, a method to it to mix, you have to mix it up okay for it to, to be the most delicious you need to have like a, a bite of like salty crunchy and then like sweet melty creamy <laughs> okay we're getting really specific here and you know the the interesting thing is that i so relate to that it's like one bite of this one bite Ooh. of that one bite of this, one bite of that. And it just, it never gets dull, right? Your taste buds are like on this massive disco train of deliciousness. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And what really frustrates me is at my local cinema, they don't mix the sweet and salty. So they'll do like a scoop of salted and then a scoop of sweet and let them sit together. So like for the first 10 minutes of the movie, I'm that person like shaking my popcorn. <laughs> and everyone's like, shh, shh. And I've never really thought before about why I do this or that I even do do this. So you've kind of, it's just something that I do and I've never thought about it until you, until this question. 
it's it's actually really funny because the reason I ask it is because I'm very fascinated. I'm actually fascinated about my own tendencies to want to switch flavors regularly. Like I have this mm. tendency to, I don't know, this flavor switching tendency or something. And then I, I think because I recognize it in myself, I have had quite extensive kind of conversations with my clients about, about uh, not only about the kind of physiology of this taste switching. I mean, literally I made this up. This is not a thing. Like there is no such study on taste switching. This is a, (laughs) it's literally a term I made up. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's part of elementary anesthesia. Like I'm sure it's, I don't know. Do you, do you know what it, what it is? I was saying I was that's where my mind was going as well in terms of elementary anesthesia and there there are there are some studies that show that if you kind of mix up flavors that it takes longer to habituate to a food Mm. Um, and I think that that's often used in the in the um, service of diet culture oftentimes as in like, you know, don't, don't have too many flavors or don't go to a buffet where there's loads of different um, plates out because then your taste buds will never get bored and then you'll never stop eating, you know, blah, 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 that whole trope. Um, so I'm very mm. careful about how I explain that with clients. But um, yeah, I think it's a thing. Yes. Yeah. It's um, no, I, I really appreciate you saying, you know, you being really thoughtful and careful about how you approach that with clients, because as you say, you know, um, a lot of the intuitive eating or um, eating disorder or diet culture recovery, mm-hmm. you know, one, once you kind of overlay that with all the bullshit that comes with diet culture, then you can mm. kind of ruin everything. Right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're we're seeing a lot of that at the moment. But I'm sure we'll get to that. <laughs> I'm yes, realizing I... that this uh, quick fire round is m- much like my podcast. Not. I was going to say yours goes like this. It's like hello, you know, you get on this, <laughs> get on this, these awesome topics, right? Um, okay, yeah. la- last one, Laura. Write or type, as in handwrite or type. What would you rather? Um, you know, it's so interesting when we sat down to record, I actually pulled out a piece of paper and a pen. So from a note taking perspective, I'll, I'll like to doodle and have a pen and piece of paper in front of me. Um, but then everything else is done on. And, 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 you know, yeah, when I'm, when I'm seeing clients, I'll take handwritten notes. Um, but then I have to transfer them all into the computer. Everything ultimately ends up on the computer anyway. So maybe resistance is futile. it's it's really interesting actually i um i've come to understand that um i I think our brains work differently when we're writing versus Mm. when we're when we're typing and there's something there's there must be a part of our brain where we're able to access maybe um a different way of connecting ideas together or um maybe a different creative part of our our minds that we're not necessarily able to access when we're typing it's really it's actually really interesting um and the reason I raise this is I've just uh this time last night I I came back from a three-day writing retreat which was really really interesting and you know another time you know when we're in the same country I'll tell you all about it it was (laughs) but it was really fascinating and one of the things I noticed is that amongst say 20 of us, 20 participants, um, probably about half hand wrote and about half 
typed. And um, it was just a topic that I started loosely kind of asking people, you know, so, so tell me about, I'm, I'm noticing your handwriting, you know, when we're doing the writing prompts, you know, tell me a little bit about what you, what you find with handwriting. And for some people it was practical. So there were a couple of people there that, um, that experienced um, arthritis. And so they preferred to type because yeah. it was easier in terms of maintaining their joint, their joint movement. Um, and for others, they, they said that it was something to do with the, the movement of the pen. They were able to, um, yeah, connect thoughts together in a way that they weren't necessarily able to typing. And, and people came up with all kinds of things, but it created some really interesting conversations. So that's why I was like, oh, actually, if I'm going to turn the tables and do some quick fire mm -hmm. action here with Laura, then I'd be super fascinated to, to hear, you know, your preference, your, your kind of natural preference. If, if I had to, if I said to you, um, okay, Laura, um, grab out, you know, we're, we're going to do some writing prompts, grab your computer or your notebook and pen. I'd be so curious to know which one you would gravitate yeah. towards. Yeah. I think from the perspective of prompts, like you say, I probably would be more inclined to grab a pen and paper. Um, but you know, like I'm just thinking about when I wrote my book that had to be online online like on my computer and and now I'm kind of thinking about I wonder you know in in some ways obviously that facilitated a process and it was important that I do it um on the computer but at the same time I'm like I wonder how much that has stifled the creative process or or kind of you know like put a ceiling on it somehow in ways that you know I might not have have even thought about now you're now you've got me thinking and maybe even slightly paranoid. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> just, just playing. But, um, but yeah, no, it is an, it's an interesting conversation. And um, yeah, I wonder that a bit further. I'm going to noodle on it. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, that's, that's the point of having these, these great conversations, isn't it? Is that it's like, oh, I didn't think about it from that perspective. And how can I then take this forward into other aspects of my life? Yeah, for sure. So speaking of Laura, about this time last year, approximately a little over a year ago, your book Just Eat It was released. So I'm curious uh, to hear you, if, if you don't mind, you know, sharing a little bit about the writing process. You know, a lot of dietitians and nutritionists and health professionals at some point in time do have the inspiration to produce mm. Um, you know, a publication of some description, whether it's an ebook or a print book or a workbook or something like that. So yeah. I'm so curious to hear, you know, just a little bit about, a little bit about that process. Yeah. So maybe it'd be helpful for me to sort of set the scene in terms of um, how it even became a book in the first place. Please. Um, yes. That'd be true. Because I think this is, I was having this conversation with a, a friend the other day and you know, she didn't really, um, she basically was thinking about just, you know, producing something and then trying to pitch it to a publisher. And I, I kind of encouraged her to, to pause on that um, and go maybe consider a slightly different route. And um, that's for a couple of different reasons. So the, the way that it typically works in publishing, for those who are interested, is, um, and it depends if you're doing fiction or nonfiction. Um, <coughs> sorry, Pete, I have a little frog in my throat this morning. Um, but the, the, the way that I did it was that I knew I had some ideas bubbling 
and um, I, I got in contact with actually some podcast guests of mine, previous podcast guests of mine, and just started asking, you know, how, how did you go about this process? Because um, they published a book, obviously, and got put in touch with their uh, literary agent. And it worked out quite fortunately that that literary agent had also been kind of scouting my podcast for potential authors, which is interesting. Um, mm. But he hadn't, he hadn't thought of me until I kind of um, <laughs> got in his face and was like, look, I can write. Um, I have ideas. You know, would you be interested in exploring those together? And he was. Um, but the, the process of me first approaching him to actually getting a, a book deal was over a year long. So mm. there was a lot of groundwork there, but that was actually really important because he helped me refine my idea. Um, he helped me pitch the book to the publishing house. He was the, the contact between me and the publishing house, which meant that I was able to, um, you know, instead of having to kind of go down maybe like a self-publishing route, I was able to talk to big publishers. Um, and I mean, it's not, it's not as straightforward as that. We definitely had some like um, knockbacks and things, but um, ultimately he, he got my proposal to a point that big publishing houses were serious in, in looking at my proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we met with quite a few of them. And I, I was just really lucky that when I walked into our meeting with, with Bluebird, who are a, um, an imprint of Pan Macmillan, who published my book, um, that my, the editor there and the, the whole team there, they just like got it. Mm. Um, whereas other publishing houses, like they kind of got it, but this, the, like I walked into this, this meeting in particular and they were like, we're really sorry. We published all these other crappy diet books. Please don't hold it against us. Mm. We want to publish your book. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they got the sort of, um, the feminist, aspect of things and um they they were really it was a really uh natural um what's the word I'm looking for selection for me I think Mm. you know we had like nice offers from from other publishers but that particular publisher they just because they they got it and they were so on board with the message behind it Mm -hmm. um that that was the the obvious choice for me so basically you, you go through this whole drawn out process and then you wait for offers. And then if you have multiple offers, it goes to a bid and then you're, you're not sure exactly what's going to happen. And, um, it, yeah, it, it was like just this, this whole drawn out process. I remember being so nervous about what was going to happen that whole time. And then you get an offer, you accept the offer, you get your contracts written up and then, you were just left on your own, mm. completely wow. to your own devices, um, because they they assume you know how to write a book, mm. um, and um, well, I I didn't. I I the longest thing I'd written was my PhD dissertation, and um, so yeah, that was kind of a steep learning curve from there in terms of not just just you know how do you write a book, but also um, having to be really disciplined and self-directed um, in terms of what that process looked like. 
um, because I also had a really tight turnaround time. So I basically wrote the book in about three and a half, four months. Oh, in wow. Terms of the, first, the first draft, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I added chapters and things subsequently to that. Um, but yeah, so that was that was like a lot of long days, long nights, um, working um, flat out. I really had to cut back on the clients and things that I was seeing at that point um, to, in order to be able to just like knock that thing out. Um, and in retrospect, I would have liked to have taken a breath and, and taken a bit more time over it. But the, you know, sometimes in the publishing world, you you in order to get the book out at the right time, you have to kind of go hell for leather mm-hmm. um, in terms of writing. And and I was glad that we got it out when we did because it was right at the peak of, um, well, it was in January, so January 2019. Mm-hmm. So it was the peak of diet culture season, and I think. Um, it was, it, I was glad ultimately that I'd pushed to get it out for that particular moment in time. Um, so yeah, that was, that, that was kind of more or less the writing process. Yeah. It's it yes, my goodness. Yeah. It, 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 from afar, it definitely seemed as though everything moved along very, very quickly. And I, mm-hmm. I knew because, um, you know, we were in touch during that time that, mm-hmm. you know, goodness, you were really pushing hard, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, you met deadlines and, um, you know, that everything was coming along well. And I, I know how dedicated you are to, um, truth, you know, and, and, and to telling the truth and to, um, demonstrating that you've done the work and to evidence and things like that. And it really shines through in the book, Laura. I think you've done a beautiful job of, um, you know, consulting with people who, um, you know, ha- have done a lot of the background work and kind of give, giving a lot of credit where credit's due, which is always something that I think is, you know, incredibly important in our spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also have, have done a hell of a lot of your own work in here. I can see, you know, a lot of your, your research skills and a lot of your, you know, a lot of those things have really have, have come to the fore as part of the, as part of the book. So, and I just love how it almost weaves a story. Mm-hmm. I think you've just done a really beautiful job it's very accessible a lot of my clients are like oh it's so easy to read it's (laughs) it just kind of goes from one thing to the next so and I liked it because it's such a reflection of the work that I do with people and you know with groups and communities I was like here have this book (laughs) oh Oh, that's um that's really lovely to hear you say that um I think um like I, I love the book, but at the same time, I hate the book. <laughs> I have this very complex, complicated relationship with the book. Um, so it is nice because, and, and as, as is, you know, kind of natural, I see the parts now that no longer reflect my practice. And, mm. you know, it's been two years since I wrote the book. Things for me have really shifted and changed in terms of, of how I practice. Um, and my understanding of intuitive eating as a framework and a process and um, all of the kind of like complementary pieces that I mm. pull in to my work around intuitive eating mm. um, that I'm, you know, in, in retrospect, included this or I wish I could have um, phrased this slightly differently. Um, mm. so to, to, ref- to reflect your kind of current understanding of the intersecting nature of things. Is that what you're meaning? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and so I've had to do a lot of work in kind of letting 
go of that a little bit mm-hmm. and, and, and realizing that that's, you know, where I was at at that point. And that is, um, you know, like you say, hopefully accessible to people and kind of gets them started on their path or journey or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, sure. and, and hopefully, you know, signs, signpost them to some of those other people that are talked about or mentioned in the book for further learning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we kind of never talked about this um, in our own, you know, um, your and my own personal conversations, but, mm-hmm. and I don't know if this is helpful or not, but one of the very, the very first book that started me on the path of investigating essentially non-diet approaches, really, mm-hmm. you know, the umbrella term for intuitive eating and, um, you know, um, weight inclusive yeah. um, healthcare is um was a book by the name of um if not dieting then what by dr rick causeman now if you and i picked up this book it's literally on the bookshelf behind me mm-hmm. if you and i picked up this book today it is uh 20 about 25 years old now coming up probably yeah 25 ish years old now and um we would, yeah, we, I, I don't even think Rick would, he, he would change, I'm sure, a lot of things in the book. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of sections that I'm like, oh, you know, that's not the way I would explain it now. And it, I, I really don't feel like even though 25 years on, even Rick wouldn't write it the same way as he did, it still doesn't change the fact that that was incredibly formative. And it was the mm-hmm. reason why literally you and I are, sitting here having this conversation mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. you know um and that i i i really hear you that you know even two years on you're like oh god you know i, I would say that differently or i would give this example or i would relate this to this or i would give a nod to abc whatever whatever um i think it's helpful to think that you know, what we do is a reflection of where we were at at one point in time and that there are people for whom um, Just Eat It is absolutely perfect, just the way it is, who, you know, if you make it a little bit more um, complex in its... Um, in the way that you're that you step people through things on one hand you'd be meeting one group of people's needs and you'd really miss others yeah so i don't know if that's helpful or not but i just i just think as it is is really beautiful um and i really on the other hand really appreciate you saying look two years on i've i've just and i know you know, firsthand Mm -hmm. how much work you've, how much time and energy you've invested in furthering, you know, and deepening your own, your own learning. But I just wanted to offer that because, you know, I still look back at if not dieting, then what? And Mm -hmm. I just hold that book as imperfect as it is so dear to my heart because it's the reason I do what I do now. Mm-hmm. so anyway mm-hmm. no I I really appreciate that thank you and 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 that's not to say you know there there isn't great stuff and in in the book and sure. um you know I pull out in sessions all the time and um you know I'm, I'm using it to help illustrate and explain co- concepts to clients so there's a lot of stuff in there that is, is still super super relevant and um and I get lovely messages from people, which I really value as well, saying how much the book has helped them in 
their version of recovery and um yeah so it's not it's not all bad by any oh no yeah um yeah there's still there's that which I think is um you know it's 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 just part of my personality that I would want to be improving and um you know challenging myself and and challenging my ideas and building on them and growing as a as a practitioner as a clinician so yeah that's Next book. <laughs> Next book. That's exactly right. Line them up. I mean, I think, you know, for all authors, all nonfiction authors, especially the, the kind of style that you've written here, you know, diet culture itself is always, you know, it's, it's shape shifting mm. so rapidly that to keep up with, um, you know, the, the nature of its shape shifting means that you probably have a book in you every, every two years, if not every five. Do you know what I mean? So it's mm. like, well. Absolutely. <laughs> version one version two and also i mean i'll be so curious because um i know that um evelyn triboli and elise resch also their, yeah. their next edition is coming out in june and i honestly i can't wait to read that because that will be i think um we might notice quite a difference in that next book it'll be fascinating i do too yeah i've seen some of the little kind of teasers that that Evelyn has dropped on her social media just in terms of how they frame things and and explain things and I'm like yeah I know that what I value and appreciate so much about them is their willingness to further and develop their model and and they're not precious about it and and they're they listen to feedback they listen to the conversations that are taking place and they're willing to adapt that framework um and i yeah i just i love them both for it yeah i think we're so appreciative you know of both of them for their humility and their you know as you say you know their willingness to to shift alongside Mm -hmm. their own learning i think it's absolutely brilliant It's, it's it's amazing authentic role modeling really yeah exactly that yeah i love that so, um, speaking of intuitive eating, I'm, I'm so I'm so curious to to hear your thoughts a little bit on, um, you know, what do you think? Intuitive eating obviously has really enjoyed, I guess, not only a resurgence um, mm. since the very first edition of the Intuitive Eating book by Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli. So it's not only a resurgence; it feels almost like a new wave of of interest and passion in mm. in intuitive eating as a set of principles and weight inclusive care as a broader paradigm so given given that and given the particular interest for dietitians and nutritionists who arguably are at really the forefront of this mm-hmm. of this movement do you think what do you notice are some of the things that people new to this space kind of st- struggle with or or um or find really difficult in the early days because enthusiasm is one thing mm-hmm. but then practice is another so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on that the the so from a, a practice perspective the thing that is jumping to my mind is that as nutritionists and dietitians we are trained to be the expert to give things to people um, you know to send them away with a meal plan a diet plan 
supplements, suggestions, whatever it is, we're always giving things to people. Mm. And what I think can be so difficult when you're working with a non-diet or an intuitive eating uh, framework is that oftentimes so much of what we're doing is just sitting holding space for people Mm. and sitting sitting with them in the discomfort Mm. um not to sound too much like fiona sutherland but no i know yeah (laughs) (laughs) that it's um when i'm talking to so we do at lcie we have student groups and we do supervision and um various other things and a, a conversation that comes up often is you know i i didn't feel like i was giving that client anything in that session i felt like we were just talking (laughs) and um oftentimes i find myself saying that that's that is so important and that in and of itself can be really healing and valuable for that person to be heard but it goes against our instincts um as nutrition professionals because we want to just give 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 does that make sense yeah absolutely it's it's not only embedded right in our training but then also I feel like it's almost part of our reputation. So, you know, if somebody is getting a mm. referral from a doctor or a specialist or, or maybe even um, a therapist or, or a, even a colleague, that I think there's this either overt or covert expectation of what a dietitian and or a nutritionist does. Mm-hmm. So I think there's kind of this intersecting nature of that it's part of our training. We deeply care about people. Uh, you know, a vast majority of uh, people who have dietetics or, or nutrition degrees do exist and show up in the world with a great degree of privilege um, mm-hmm. and have not necessarily had anywhere near the depth of, um, you know, experiences that our clients have. I mean, that's not a universal mm-hmm. truth, not, not at all, but, um, you know, let's be, let's be, you know, honest here that, you know, vast majority of, of people with these extensive degrees, you know, to have the privilege to have a degree is, is huge. Um, and yeah, then there's the, the other side of the reputation. So yeah, I think you, I think you're spot on that it's, you know, not only, um, that we, you know, in our, in our desires to kind of, to fix or to ease Mm -hmm. people's pain, um, you know, we kind of, we almost create a rod for our backs in a way and perpetuate this idea of, yeah, this is what we do. And this is how we ease pain is to, is to fix it. And what we don't realize I think is that we kind of diet culture all over people. If we're, if Mm -hmm. we're in our attempts to, to fix them. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, for me, it comes back to this idea of, of de-experting myself and my experiences so that I can be fully present in the room with that individual. And so, you know, as we've been talking about like growing and and learning over the past couple of years, one thing that I've become kind of obsessed with is the, the Carl Rogers idea of of person centered care. Mm. Um, And I don't know about in Australia, but certainly in the UK, there is a huge, amount of lip service paid in the NHS in particular to this idea of person well they don't call it they call it patient-centered care which is part of the problem but mm, mm. Um, we don't need to get into the minutia yeah, I don't sure. think um, but but it's it's that you know Carl for anyone who is unfamiliar Carl Rogers um, c- 
came up with this kind of therapeutic, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, an approach from therapy where he talked about how person-centered care was in and of itself necessary and sufficient for therapeutic change. And essentially what he was saying within that is that if you, you know, strip away all the tools, all the techniques, all the fancy schmancy upskilling that you've done, what is left and is that, you know, he believed that if you've got that part right, that connection, that relationship right with your client, that you didn't need all, I mean, we need the, the fluff for various other reasons, but even if you stripped all of that away, we would be able to support and help our client through change, whatever that meant for them. Um, does that, does, does that make sense? Are you familiar with this? Yeah. So, so that's what they call, um, Rogerian work, right? Is that? Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and the idea that, um, the idea of being alongside someone as they are figuring out their own ball of wool rather than us yeah. saying, here, let me take your, your tangled ball of wool and let me untangle it for you. And then I'll hand it back to you in a nice tidy ball or something like that. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that comes up for us, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, is that when people are struggling with stuff, it really brings up some serious shit for us. Mm. Oh, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah, and I, I think, and I think that is where often people um, that fixing instinct kicks in, right? Like, oh, I'm uncomfortable because you're uncomfortable, so I need to fix you so that I'm okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, yeah, there is that piece of us having to have, have worked through our own shit in order to be able to help the person that we are supporting and helping. Yes. Yes. And it's, and it's not even like the deep, dark recesses of our own life experiences. It's not, it can be that, but it's not just about mm. that. It's also to loop back to your, um, you know, to, to your thoughts on be positioning ourselves as the expert. I think that this is something that gets very bolstered during our training is that, you know, oh, you are God. the experts and even, this is something that I'm not sure about BDA, but um, our national association certainly positions us as the experts, the people to go to. And certainly it could be argued that nutritionists and dietitians, sure, you know, we, we know a few things, particularly about nutrition science, particularly about medical nutrition therapy, about human physiology. Sure. You know, there, there is some, there's some stuff that we know. Um, and oh my God, there is so much that we don't know, particularly mm -hmm. about each individual's human experience and the complexities mm -hmm. of food and eating and body relationships. And the, 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 I don't know whether it's irony, I'm probably not using that word correctly, but the, uh, the interesting part about that is that's what people are bringing to us. They're not bringing nutrition science to us, they're bringing their human experience to us. And so mm -hmm. what that often gets met with is is confusion or um, not knowing how to best be of service to people because mm -hmm. on one hand we're kind of positioned as 
the expert on nutrition and apparently on humans and then on mm -hmm. the other hand the, here, here, here is here is you know the, these people that sit in front of us who are in pain and are really struggling in their relationships with with food and eating in their body and and I know you know you and I both understand that we're not just talking about clinical eating disorders here we're talking about mm -hmm. complex gut conditions we're talking about oncology we're talking mm -hmm. about family feeding and pediatrics we're talking about aged care we're talking about all the ways that diet culture fucking gets its bloody claws into mm -hmm. every single edge of life here um but anyway I feel like I've just done a big long speech <laughs> well I was just as as you were speaking there I was just thinking about how uncomfortable it can feel to be told as someone who has invested in you know we talked about privilege but you know the people have have invested a lot of time money energy efforts in getting a degree an advanced degree and so to then be for for us <laughs> to turn around and be like well yeah you need to work on de-experting yourselves and undoing a lot of the things that you've learned in through all of that training um i i i guess um i want to just have a little compassion for for those folks who um are, are are struggling with that idea um and and i like to clarify as well that which i think you did too is is we're not saying that you don't have expertise. We don't say you you don't have. We're not saying you don't have value um, to bring to the table. But what we're saying is that you don't have expertise over other people's bodies, experiences, um, relationships, and so on and so forth. And so if you can you can try and hold those those two things in mind. Yes, I have things to bring to the table but I have to also be able to meet my client where they're at in order for those, um, in order for that expertise that I do have to actually be helpful and not harmful. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. So it's kind of the holding of both of those two things so that any helpfulness or service that we can be to our clients can be brought in a really kind of natural fashion and in a way that is, um, you know, consent, consent based mm -hmm. and offers choice um, and in a way that is really timely. So we're not like pushing our own agenda or, um, you know, kind of yeah, pushing out, pu pushing our own thoughts and, um, and ideas on other people. So yeah, you're spot on. I love that summary. That was beautiful. Yeah. And I think that idea of us, parking our agendas at the door is really important and to bring it back to intuitive eating I think this is where people often get caught up because they're like well we have these 10 principles we have to deliver them in a particular order um, and we need to do like one a week or one you know one principle per session and it, I think it's really important to just slow that way 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 down yes. so that you're not overloading the client with information first of all but secondly so that you give yourself the opportunity to actually understand what it is that they are you know what they perceive themselves to be struggling with and actually listen to what's going on for them so that you as a clinician even give yourself enough time to figure that out as well and to to get that straight in your head the pieces that 
and this is where your expertise comes in, right, is that the pieces that you can see that they're maybe not quite wrapping their heads around yet. And, and that, so you can help them plug those gaps rather than, um, you know, forcing them to talk about, let's say, mindful eating when actually they need to be thinking, you know, what, what's coming up for them is body image that particular day. Mm, mm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's really interesting, actually, because um, I know I, I've heard Evelyn and Elise say this repetitively, and that is that, you know, intuitive eating, the, t- the 10 principles, they're not designed to be in a particular order. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's almost like um, in acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, we talk mm-hmm. about the, you know, the, the process, the processes um, of the, the six core processes of the hexaflex and um and that you kind of start where it makes sense for people and that some you know and i've one of um somebody who i've got to know quite well a, a, an amazing psychotherapist by the name of margaret berman who wrote a, a beautiful mm. book on act and Love and wait and wake, yeah. i know it's beautiful um the acceptance and commitment therapy for for weight concern um and she says start where you love and I thought, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. I love that. So the idea is that, you know, you, you start where feels feels like you can just get a foot in the door. Yeah. Um, so if inact, that might be values or it might be diffusion or it might be mindfulness or it could be, you know, anywhere. And I feel that that, that might be similar to for intuitive eating, although... Although I'd love to kind of, you know, hear your thoughts on, I feel like sometimes we can, mm, I was going to say mess it up, but that's not exactly what I mean. I just mean kind of create a bit more confusion when we, when we kind of go for, when, when we like rush a little bit or go for mm-hmm. something that's a little bit beyond someone. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. What, what do you think about, about the, the, the ordering of things? So actually, as you were talking about, act I was thinking to myself sometimes when I'm working with somebody on intuitive eating I start with act Mm. and I start with getting some of those um, act principles in place in terms of you know acceptance and um, diffusion and values and, and you know checking in with my client to understand what their values are because that is going to guide my work with them mm. in intuitive eating. Um, and so sometimes I'm not like to speak to your point about just slowing it down and kind of laying the groundwork, setting that really solid foundation of, um, we often refer to it as our, our toolkit of coping skills or um, you know something to that effect so that people have that foundation that underpins intuitive eating down before we start layering on some of the things that might be a bit more complex for them. Mm. Mm, I love that. Yes. And, and of course, a lot of the, um, you know, non-diet principles, which of course, including, include intuitive eating principles. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of those can sit so beautifully within a therapeutic modality. So whether that's mm-hmm. ACT or CBT or even DBT or, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are lots of kind of therapeutic modalities, which are, it's almost like, I feel like it's almost uh, woven together as opposed to disparate 
ideas that we hold separately. I feel like, you know, the, like you say, the, this kind of the, the processes and skills of diffusion and, and values and acceptance does lay this beautiful groundwork to be able to do meaningful behavior change oriented mm -hmm. work with people when it comes to intuitive eating, because it's, it, it, I mean, we can kind of dance around it a million different ways, but at the end of the day, this is really about shifting, shifting, not only kind of, ugh, I hate this word that I'm about to say, but almost mm. mindset. I don't, ugh, I really ugh, rally <laughs> against that word, but a relationship with, there we go, a relationship yes. with our mind, that's better. Yeah. Um, and then our actual behaviours so that we can live a life that is more aligned with what's most important to us. Absolutely. And, and I think um, that's, that's why I love values work so much is because it is so pertinent for me as a clinician to understand what is important for the person that I'm sat in the room with, as opposed to me projecting my ideas of what I think should be important to them which is often, again, going back to how we're trained, is that's, that's and it's not as, um, as, as blatant as this and, or as violent as I'm making it sound, but, um, you know, we often are trained to go in with a set of guidelines or an agenda or a protocol that we are then pushing on somebody else without really having understood what's valuable to that person. So we're doing we're doing things to that person instead of working with that person. Mm, yeah. What a beautiful way to express it. Uh, you know, and, th and that's something that all of us have done a million times before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've done it. And I, yeah. I have to constantly work on, um, that, that writing mm. reflex, yes. uh, writing in the sense of correcting, yes. um, in, in session because it is so easy to slip back into that. Well, um, you know, have you tried adding this to your diet or whatever it is instead of exploring that with the client, you know, what, what, um, what do you think might be interesting to try here or, or what have you tried in the past? What would you like to try? Mm. Um, instead of asking those questions, kind of forcing my ideas on, on other people. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the thing that I that I really love about Carl Rogers' work is that he speaks so much about the human meeting the human and mm -hmm. that, you know, we trip up all the time too. And mm. you know, we're we're just at the end of the day, you know, we're actually in a in a position where we're so fortunate, we're so lucky and privileged not only in a kind of structural way, but then also in a, yeah. in a um, human to human kind of contact way to, um, you know, to get to know people, not only, not only kind of what they appear to bring, but then also what they deeply bring and, and where they mm -hmm. want to be in life. It's just such mm -hmm. a massive um, honor really in so many ways. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm really grateful that I get to build long-term relationships with my clients. It's not just a, you know, um, a hit and run 15, 20 minute session, which, mm. uh, I, I, which of course is, is an enormous privilege. I'm very aware of that. Um, but it, I, I don't take that for granted or take that lightly at all. 
Yeah, it's 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 kind of when, when you get to know people on a completely different level, it's um I don't think our world's going to almost ever be the same. I feel like I'm a different person almost to <laughs> to what I was uh you know as yeah. a as a new grad for example. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, interesting to reflect. Um, so one other thing, if it's okay to just switch gears a little bit here, Laura, yeah. I, I know that more recently you have um, developed together with your team some really interesting um, body-inclusive guides, both for clinicians and also for clients and, and general general community members. So um, I was hoping that you might tell us a little a bit about this and, you know, where people can find them and, you know, just, just offer us a bit of information about it because as far as I'm aware, there's nothing of this particular sort out there. I mean, there's 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 Health at Every Size Aligned MNT mm. guides, which are absolutely fantastic, produced by Megan mm. Suchi and her team. Uh, but this particular uh, kind of set of guides sound it's it's quite different. So, can you step us through yeah. them, if you don't mind? Yeah, I'd I'd love to. Um... And so I think the, and yes, just to first of all, totally agree with your point that there are so many wonderful resources out there that exist already or certainly aren't the only ones. Um, but what we um, were noticing in our practice is that we, we kept coming up against clients who we weren't coming up against the clients. <laughs> we, we, kept, we, kept seeing, we kept seeing clients who they themselves were then coming up against the, you know, the whole clout of the medical system in terms of um, not being able to get the, the care that was really appropriate for them and was potentially even harmful. So, um, you know, for example, people with PCOS, being told to go on a low carb diet, um, people mm. with NAFLD being told, um, you know, there's nothing you can do except lose weight and maybe drink coffee. And, <laughs> and we know because we are massive nutrition nerds that, that there is so much more that we can offer those individuals. Um, we just needed to kind of knuckle down, get our heads into the evidence get our heads around the, the guidelines that were available, critically appraise them, tear them apart, um, and, and kind of come up with something that felt supportive and um, body inclusive um, rather than, you know, just a, a mandate to, to lose weight. And we, we also want, <coughs> excuse me, we wanted to, empower other clinicians with this information because we know that it, it it's a lot of time and effort and energy that takes us away from seeing our clients or running our businesses to produce something like this of, of a really high quality and high caliber. So what what we've done is um, from, from January this year to June, we each month are releasing a bundle um, which basically for the cl for, from a clinician's perspective, it includes um, uh, an hour's webinar on the pathophysiology, etiology, guidelines, and then evidence-based recommendations for a particular condition. Then we have a client-facing fact sheet that they can give out to their clients that takes all of this information and just puts... Um, 
well, the whole thing is, is, is from coming from a non-diet perspective, but it puts it in a way that's accessible and approachable for the client and helps gives them a little bit of structure that they might like to work through some of these concepts. Mm. Um, and, and when I say it's a client work, like it's like a booklet, it, they're like 15, 20 pages long worth of, of information. So it's giving them hopefully a lot of insight into their condition, but helping them also trying to do things like remove blame and stigma around a particular condition, mm-hmm. um, which is often the subtext of like, you know, let's take Naffold for example, well, there, you, there's nothing you can do. You need to lose weight. The, the subtext of that is, well, your weight has caused this, this issue for you, which is mm-hmm. absolutely categorically not true. So trying to remove a lot of the blame and the stigma from a particular condition and then give them a sort of, smorgasbord of options that they might like to try out to help manage their condition and not going straight to diet and exercise starting with maybe medications and supplementations um, body image and mental health um, things that they might want to look at and consider and so we're doing it in this kind of a way that steps them through that in a much more self-compassionate way hopefully anyway that's the client worksheet. And then we also have a 30 minute webinar at the end of every month for Q and A's for clinicians, if they need more support in terms of how to actually deliver this on the ground with a client, um, or if they have any other questions about the evidence or the literature or anything like that. So that's, we've, we're doing, um, we've done NAFLD, HA and PCOS. Um, we're doing IBS, fertility and insulin resistance coming up in the next couple of months Uh, Um, that's brilliant and then all of those um the the client facing fact sheets also available on gumroad for individuals who want to download it we really recommend that clinicians get the full training so that they've got that background information as well and there's some things that we explain in that that might not be appropriate for the the client necessarily but we've given them the background and the rationale and justification so that if a client did ask their clinician about it, they would feel equipped to handle that question. So, you know, questions about guidelines and, um, you know, evidence around losing weight for a certain condition, for example. Yeah, that's, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. So I can tell that, uh, so for some uh, dietitians and nutritionists or health professionals that might be listening to this, they're like, mm. oh, oh no, I missed PCOS. Oh, no. Um, so can people go back and buy the bundles that they've missed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's no time limit on it. You get access to the pre-recorded webinars. Um, so you can go back and revisit them. And we, we have like a special, so if you buy the six pack bundle, you save a little bit of money or you can go back, back and buy each one individually. Oh, that's, yeah, that's absolutely brilliant because I, yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, definitely people will want to probably go back and listen to things repeatedly. I imagine. I mean, if there's anything like me, I have to, I I have to listen and read things twice for it to even permeate (laughs) 50% of the way through my brain. So I think that's. Yeah, that's it's so uh, ingenious and creative of you to be able to, uh, you know, kind of pull this um, evidence-based practice and 
research together um, mm. and to be able to deliver it in a way that feels very accessible um, and then also we're able to deliver it um, in a in a truly person-centered way uh, yeah. with our clients as well yeah that that's certainly the intention a lot of work has has gone into creating these resources and also to have them kind of um, checked over by by people outside of the, the team here at LCIE so whether that's our clients or whether that's colleagues and um, other members of the, the the Hayes or the wider fat activist community so we're really grateful to have the input of those folks as well obviously we can't cover absolutely everybody's different experiences but we've we've tried to make it feel um as supportive as possible for as wide a range of folks as we can mm. um yeah yeah and, and that's the thing sometimes with with medical or, or health conditions is that you know it, it is often the case that it's not just one we we might be dealing with for example um, pcos and ibs for example, yeah. you know, and that it, it, it's extremely difficult to disentangle how the two intersect, how those two experiences intersect mm -hmm. and what's common between them and then what might be a little bit, a little bit less common. It might be, for, I mean, what I mean by less common is um, a little separate, you know, a little bit more in each camp. One might be a little more hormonal based, one might be a little bit more biological based. I mean, yeah. not that, Oh my God, I'm getting myself all mixed up now. <laughs> I was like, hormones are biology. You know what I mean? Physiology or, um, you know, yeah, uh, functional, functional, thank you. Anatomical organic. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really difficult to, to tease those, those things apart. And I think that's why it's nice to have the Q and a set. And that's why we've designed mm. it this way is to have a Q and a. So you, if you have a complex case and, and I'm not trying to, suggest that we've seen everything and um, we know all the answers, but we can at least um, provide some other ideas and suggestions of how we might think about approaching that. Um, and, and another big piece that we're pushing in, in the, the clinician piece is around um, advocating for your client and, um, you know, stepping in with uh, other healthcare professionals if, if needed, mm. um, which oftentimes we find ourselves, like we find ourselves doing that a lot of the time mm -hmm. in, in our clinic. I'm not sure about you, Steve, but um, I've spent half of my life writing letters to GPs mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, to, yep. to try and get a diagnosis or um, uh, an appropriate, the appropriate care. So um, yeah, we're really pushing that side of things as well um, and, and hopefully empowering people to, to have those conversations with other members of a, of a healthcare team. Yeah, I love that. That aspect of it is actually really critical, isn't it? Being able to feel um, appropriately skilled to be able to have those mm -hmm. conversations because certainly a lot of dietitians and nutritionists, when we are communicating with other other health providers, there's this, often this part of us that feels like, oh, I don't know enough or, you know, I haven't read enough of the research or blah, blah, blah. And I think sometimes we forget that actually the the other health providers that we're speaking with, often they don't have tons of experience uh, necessarily in the person, the person, um, you know, who we're sharing, the, the mm. person's care, who we're sharing as well. So, um, you know, I think it can be, you know, it, 
I think sometimes we can trip ourselves up, but I think, uh, you know, I, I really am so grateful that you've developed these resources, which, which, you know, kind of tick all those boxes in terms of advocacy, um, you know, skills and knowledge and also offer opportunities for us to, um, you know, to kind of delve more into the complexity or the intersecting nature mm -hmm. of so many of these experiences. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope that people find them valuable. I know that um, I wish I had access to these kinds of things, um, you know, when I, when I was starting out and, and getting more into um, health at every size and intuitive eating and non-diet approaches more broadly, having some, I mean, and that's, that's where some of these came from was just us, um, you know, having to put pen to paper um, and produce something that was, that was helpful for our clients. And so we're just trying to build those up into a bit of a library at this point. Mm, yes, love that. That's absolutely brilliant. So um, before we kind of get into the broad, broader areas of where people can find you, so specifically yeah. for this, for these sets of guides, which just sound just incredible, um, where can people find that? So that is, so we have on the London Centre for intuitiveeating.co.uk website, we have created a tab now that is for healthcare professionals specifically. And so that has our generic um, applying intuitive eating and non-diet approach in practice online training, as well as our weight inclusive guides. Um, as well as um, like workshops, supervision, our Facebook group. Um, we host um, or have been in the past, we're kind of trying to figure, get this up and running again, but we also host a monthly student meetups for um, nutrition and dietetic students or recent graduates so that we can come and talk about some really clinical skills and things that they might not have had as part of their formal training. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we've got all of that information on the For Professionals tab of our website. So yeah, it's all there. That is just just wonderful. Uh, and where can people find either, so we've talked about the London Centre for Intuitive Eating, that website.co.uk. Yeah. Um, and then you, your book, where can people yeah. find more about you? Yeah, I think I mostly hang out on Instagram these days at Laura Thomas PhD. Um, I'm kind of lurking in the background, not posting that much until I figure out exactly what to say. Um, um, and then my book is Just Eat It, um, which you should be able to get certainly in Australia and the UK and there are means to get it in the US. You can email me about that. Um, and I, I have a website, laurathomasphd.co.uk, but I don't really maintain it at all, but all of my podcasts are on there. Mm -hmm. um, so all the Don't Stop My Game podcasts are there or on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, wherever you let your ears get their <laughs> listening pleasure. I was laughing at you. I was listening to your podcast the other week and not laughing at you, but laughing with you because I did the same thing where you said that, you hadn't realized that you have to like push your podcast to all these different platforms. Yes. Oh my like, God. I didn't do that either. It took me a while to figure that one out too. I didn't realize. I, yeah, yeah I just didn't, 
I didn't realize until somebody only, yeah, not very long ago said, oh, I love Spotify and I've noticed that Mindful Dietitian isn't on Spotify. And I'm like, what? what? It doesn't magically appear across all platforms. But then and it does magically appear on other ones, yes, like on Google is, Podcasts. Right. And so you're like, nobody, like, I've, I've been making podcasts <laughs> for like three years and I still do not understand how they work. No, I don't know. Yeah, and some of them accept different, um, different formats. So some of them will accept yeah. MP3 and MP4 and WAV files, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Others will only, for example, Spotify will only accept MP3s. That's the only uh, format they will accept things in. So then I had to. Anyway, this is a long story, but then I had to transform all the episodes into a different. F oh God, Spotify! I love you. I hate you. I love you. I hate you. <sighs> love listening but um yes you're making my life a little tense <laughs> oh my goodness well thank you for persevering and getting the podcast out because the like your podcast has for me has been such a um a really um important professional tool um not that it's you know it's not a substitute for like one-on-one -on -one supervision and and training and things but to hear these conversations has been so valuable for me. So I'm very, very grateful that you put the time and effort and energy into figuring out. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that, Laura. Thank you. Well, oh, and thank you for being um, my long awaited guest. I know I've been oh. kind of, well, not kind of, I definitely have been hassling you. Um, <laughs> I think there's no other word for it. So I just really appreciate finally being able to, you know, have have this conversation and the interesting thing is I think that had we had this conversation when I probably first in like yeah. asked you maybe two years ago I just think this would have been really different so there's a real part of me that's like oh I'm so glad we waited you know this is lovely to just have a different conversation yeah yeah no I think so it would have been if we'd done it like or even around the time the book had come out it would have been completely different so yeah I'm glad we waited and we could get into some of the like nitty gritty stuff yeah oh fantastic laura thank you so much again i really appreciate your your time um and all the effort and energy that you bring to the world we just we we adore you and we you know, we're, we're so grateful that you're here um it's so kind yeah it's wonderful to, to have you in the world and um yes so i i will hopefully well we'll get to reconnect another time in the UK or maybe even in Australia. Um, and yes, until then have a terrific rest of your day. Thank you. I'm going, I'm going to hold you to that um, Australia slash London trip. Okay. <laughs> Just because you've held me to it. All right. I do promise. <laughs> All right, thanks. Steve. Thanks Laura. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.